You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected with our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge and our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message. We would love to hear from you. I'm going to pray before we, before we open up and read God's word. God, thank you so much for this Sunday that you've given us, this Sunday of Thanksgiving. And we're reminded that we live a life of gratitude because of what you've done. And that's, that is our response. To the grace that you've shown to us, we respond in gratitude. There's nothing else we can give. That we live lives and we sing songs and we serve people out of gratitude for what you've done. Thank you for this reminder. But Lord, every Sunday is really thanksgiving. It's giving thanks to you. And so, thank you, God. Lord, now as we open up your word, may the spirit come into our hearts. May he ambush our hearts that we would be changed, that we would get a clearer picture of who Jesus is, but also get a clearer picture of who we are. As it says in the book of James, that the word of God is like a mirror to our own own heart, that we may not see clearly. And and then when we read these words through the Holy Spirit, we, we see our true heart. Lord, may we be like the one in in the book of James, who sees it for what it is, and we say, we, we walk away, and we don't forget, but we actually make those changes, uh, that we would uh, be sanctified to look like Jesus in the people that we interact with, in the families that we're in. God, we pray for all these things in your great name. Amen. So we are going through this series called My Name is Exile, and so I'm just going to fly right in. So 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. And it's just going to be two verses this morning. So I promise we're going to be shorter this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. This is, in my opinion, some commentators disagree, but I'm the only one speaking this morning, so we're going to go with that one. Okay? Chapter 2 verse 11 and 12. I think this is the pivotal passage in the entire book, so it's very important. This is where we've laid down, okay, this is who we are, this is our identity, that we are exiles because we belong to God's holy nation. That's our primary identity, but now it shifts to what do we actually do when the the rest of the world doesn't share that same identity? We're exiles from the world because of our identity in Jesus, and so this is the pivotal passage of transition. So look what it says in verse 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, I urge you, and here it is, here's our identity that we've talked about so much already, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the pivotal passage. This is where everything shifts in the book. There's one thing to like, who am I, but now what, how do I respond in my life? What I love about 1 Peter, this is, this is not just a book for seminarians. This is, this is a street-level Christian book. As you engage with the world around you, some of you come from Families where maybe you're the only Christian in that family. 
And so this hits home. You're like, my idea, it's almost like I'm a bit of an exile in my own home because the people that I live with don't, don't share that same identity with me. You might be the only Christian in your workplace or in your school. And you may stick out like a sore thumb because of the values and beliefs and faith that you choose to follow, choose to have. This is street-level Christianity. Because it says, as sojourners and exiles, that's the identity. We are primarily citizens of God's holy nation. You know, we're citizens of Canada, and at that time, we were, and at that time he's writing to people who are citizens of the Roman Empire and the cities that they are, that they are in. But we're primary citizens, primarily citizens of God's holy nation. Our first identity is that we're, we're Christians. We're, we are bound to Jesus. And last week we looked at that. It says we are the chosen race, a holy priesthood, uh, or a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And so as people who are primarily citizens of God's holy nation, this is how do we operate when we're also inside another nation as foreigners and exiles. It made them I love that he uses that phrase because this is a phrase, it made them easily distinguishable from the people around them, just for who they were. My father-in-law, who was playing keys this morning, sorry, Dad, you're here, so I'm going to pick on you, was telling a story when he lived in Indonesia yesterday. And even though uh, Filipinos and Indonesians look similar, they're close, at least geographically, you could not speak Indonesian. So even if you look the same with the people that you work with, the family that you belong to, the language that you speak might be completely different. So dad, what was the phrase, the only phrase that you knew in Indonesian in the market? Which, which meant? Good morning. Good morning. Was there anything else? How much? Do you even know the phrase how much? He doesn't even know anymore. He forgot already. So even though, you know, even just like little things like that make you easily distinguishable from the language that you speak, the identity you have makes you stick out like a sore thumb as soon as you open your mouth because you're easily, easily distinguished like a foreigner. It's like, oh, he does not speak our language clearly. I think one of the principles in this text that's found here that they were going through is that that strangeness in their life with the people that they were with, that strangeness attracts scrutiny, right? Just like dad in a marketplace, people, he was scrutinized easily because he didn't understand the language. But strangeness attracts scrutiny, I mean, that's the root of a lot of prejudices. Any sort of difference or unknown, something unexpected attracts scrutiny from the people that understand the language. If you didn't know this, but Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, anyone watch Charlie Brown Thanksgiving at Thanksgiving time? Maybe just my family does. It's technically American Thanksgiving, but we watch it twice because we love it so much. Charlie Brown Thanksgiving is there's something really profound going on in that, in, in that episode that you may not even know, but Franklin, who was the, one of the first black characters written into a cartoon that was mainly white. And actually the producers wanted Franklin 
out of the episode. And they said, you, Charles Schultz, who's the creator, you need to take this character out because this, people are going to be offended when they see a black character sitting down for Thanksgiving with a white family. That strangeness attracted scrutiny. But Charles Schultz famously said, no, either Franklin stays or I'm pulling the whole show. And they kept him in. Strangeness does attract scrutiny. The eyes are on you more if you are the one who is different. And that's going on in our passage, it seems. And look at verse 12. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you or slander you as evildoers. There was an unjust slandering of those who had converted to Christianity as we looked at last week just simply because they chose to live a different life or different values, there was an unjust slandering that was going on for the Christian community in that, in that world. Tacitus, who was a famous Roman historian, he called Christians a race detested for their evil practices. And what's coming in the passages Next, is that it seems like there was mistreatment for Christian slaves who had converted. There seemed to be an abuse of power, which we'll look at next week. The passage after that for spouses who had converted to Christianity, for the Christian wife or husband, there was mistreatment, turning on one another. And then for the rest of the book, there seems to be clearly Christian persecution that there was actual physical brutality committed against the Christian population because of their strangeness. So how do you respond? How would you respond? Some of you may be going through that already where there is, there is some form of, form of persecution maybe in your family or in your workplace because of the values that you choose to live with. I think what Peter's getting at is how, how, how do you respond to that? Those real situations that we find ourselves in. We're tempted to fight back. Those who persecute me or mistreat me, we fight back and mistreat the people that are mistreating us. Which would not only have been understandable, but probably many of us would say, yeah, encourage it. You know, they talk bad about you, talk bad about them. They hit you, you hit back. It's almost understandable in our response to the mistreatment against us. It's amazing to me as Christians where, you know, we, we, we sing the songs and, and, and we, we go through that motion of our Christian faith. But then it's when someone speaks bad of us or mistreats us, it's almost like we, we get a free pass to mistreat that person back. You know, we fight back against it. It's like, they don't deserve my forgiveness. They don't deserve my grace. Did you, did you hear what they said about me? They don't deserve it. How do you respond? The temptation may be to fight back, but actually Peter has pointed that there is another fight that we have to be aware of. And he says this in the passage, and here's the actual fight. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He's saying there's actually a bigger fight, not against you and the person who's mistreating you for being a Christian, but there's a fight going on inside of you that's even greater, that's more important than the fight going on in front of your face. When he says the passions of the flesh, those cravings, addictions, desires that exist 
And it says to abstain or keep away because those passions declare war on your identity in your soul of being a Christian. Now, in one sense, I think that is referring to that there is an everyday battle for the Christian between the flesh and the spirit. You see that in Romans 6, 7, and 8, where it's like which there's this ongoing battle between following the way of the spirit or submitting to, or, or caving into uh, the passions of the flesh. But I think there's something else that Peter's addressing here in the context. Every war is a fight for control. You know that, right? Every war is a fight for control. Either you, want, you declare war so you want control over someone else, or you're defending it because you don't want them to control you. So every war is, is ultimately a battle for control. And that exists just in war in general, but also in your workplace, also in your marriage, every fight is a fight for control. And in the context, what I believe is going on, there's a war between two kingdoms that exist in all of those spheres that goes on in our soul every single day. Which kingdom is going to have control of my heart? Is it going to be the normal kingdom of the earth that exists for everybody that people unknowingly just submit to or are drawn to? Or is it going to be the kingdom of God? that will have control of my soul. That in mistreatment, there was a temptation to give up hope and be led away back to the kingdom of the earth where they, where they lived before. Which culture will I adopt? Now, I hesitate to even use the word culture because not everything in culture is wrong, but do you know that in the world that we live, there are things that are just the way they are. You know, as you, a, a person who lives in Cambridge, Ontario, in the year 2021, there's just a temperature that exists. And you don't even know any better until, until you actually, until another kingdom has control over you. It's almost like, for me, I like it really cold and Nikki likes it really hot in our house, Right? where I might not even feel the temperature and I might have it very cold in our house, but Nikki, who lives for something different, all of a sudden now she's putting on layers because she feels the difference, whereas I'm more comfortable. In the context that we find ourselves in, there are things that are just the way they are that we are actually at risk of submitting to or giving up control to without even knowing it. That happens in our classrooms, that happens in my bank account, in my office, in front of my laptop, at home with my family, that we're all at risk to if we don't cede control to the kingdom of God. And I think the question, the burning question from when it, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, what uncurbed impulses am I actually at risk of submitting to, that wage war against me that, that I don't even, that I may not even feel, that I don't even know exists. Now, I don't want to bash Canadian culture. Okay? I don't want to like be a culture basher and say everything's wrong, because it's not. And especially on Thanksgiving. This is a time to be happy, right? This is a time to eat turkey and celebrate our Canadian Thanksgiving. 
There are things, though, like we live in a very, and this has been spoken of a lot in churches, we live in a very consumeristic society that we don't even feel. It just exists. And unless we cede control to the kingdom of God, which says things like, uh, don't worry about your life, live for the kingdom of God, all these other things will be taken care of themselves. Like, that goes so much against just the way that we are, the way that we've been raised, that we, don't even, we, we wouldn't even feel the difference if not for ceding control to the kingdom of God. We live in a very consumeristic society. When it comes to how we're entertained, how we lead, the sexual lives that we live, even how we worship on Sunday mornings, we just naturally live not to serve others, but to be served by other people. That's kind of the framework that we exist in. I, I was doing some thinking. This is not from the text, so take this with a grain of salt. This is just from me, but just an observation of Canadian culture. The other thing that may not be so, because consumerism gets a, lot of, gets a lot of press in the church. Be like, don't be a consumer. Every church says that. There's a few other things, that, though, I think in Canadian society that we've got to be aware of that can be just uncurbed impulses. That if we don't submit to Jesus in the kingdom of God, that we wouldn't even know anything's wrong. One of them, I think, is this. I don't know, about, I don't know if you've experienced this, but Canadians can be very condescending. There's almost like a passive aggressiveness, I think, that in our, we're known for being polite, on the outside. But I know I struggle with, we may not be forthright like our friends to the south, but we assume we're better. Like as Canadians, we kind of assume we're just better than, anything, than any other culture that exists. And I say that because in James 3.13 is an important passage. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility which comes from wisdom. Man, like, if you want to showcase the Christian identity in a world that, you know, just is kind of the way it is, being humble is a way to do that. Because humility doesn't come natural, especially to our context. Or even in the next few weeks, what we're going to be talking about, which is almost a swear word in our context, which is submission. Like, that's almost, it feels wrong. The other one I say to be aware of is this. And maybe this one I've just been wrestling with for a long time and just in my interactions with people and also for having friends from the United States come up and tell us, man, you guys may not even know this, but it is very different here than what we're used to. One of them is, and I, there's a lot of articles to back this up, Canadians are, are a cynical bunch of people. We're very cynical people that just kind of exist. Our good friends from the United States came up, and that was one of the first things they said. They were trying to plant a church and uh, reach people with the gospel and just knock on doors, and they're like, man, no one, like, no one wants to open up to you. It's very cold. Like everyone's, to even open up the front door, everyone's so hesitant to let anybody in their life. Because there's a cynicism that just exists, I think, in our culture. 
It's a stubborn nihilism that wants to see through everything and not see anything in front of you, which makes it really hard to trust anybody. Have you ever found that? Like with people that at your workplace or your family, like we just have a hard time trusting anybody and sometimes for good reason. But more than that, it's even harder to know anybody. It's really hard to have intimacy. Even as a church, like I'm really thankful for this church where I feel like there's a level of intimacy where we know one another. But in a Canadian context, that's really hard to create. Because there is a coldness or a lack of intimacy. All of these things and more war against our souls. And we may not even know it. Because that's the temperature of the place that we live in. And unless we give control to the kingdom of God, we won't even feel it. Because it just exists. But the soul that has their eyes fixed on the kingdom of God, it's a change that like these believers 2,000 years ago and believers here today in our Canadian context, it can't help but be recognized. Because we are called to be humble. We are called to serve. We are called to have intimate community. And to actually trust this God that we say we believe in. A soul that has their eyes fixed on the kingdom of God, it's a change that can't help but be recognized by the world around us. Look what it says in the passage. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In my opinion, that's a poor translation of the word because the word really means beautiful or attractive. Something that is good to look at. It's, it's something that's recognized and be like, wow, that, that's, that's something that I want in my life. It looks good. It looks attractive. It's something that the world sees and recognizing that is strange, that's so different, but so attractive. That, man, I want to be a part of that. I need that in my life. Not just to, so we are called not to stick out like a sore thumb but like an itch that has never been scratched before or a way to see that you've never seen before. I remember with my glasses, I had lived 23 years of my life with poor vision and I had no idea that I had poor vision. It was just what I grew up with. I had no idea until I actually put on glasses for the very first time and said, oh, this is how people are supposed to see. Right? This is normal eyesight. This is the eyesight that we've, we were born to be with. I just had no idea. But the thing is, you understand, like, until you actually see it, you have no idea anything else exists. Like we said at the beginning of this series, the people who grow up, the allegory of the cave, people who grow up in a cave, they have no way of looking out. All they know are shadows on a well until they escape the cave and see the world for the way it's supposed to be. They have no idea that it even exists until they recognize it in you. Do you understand what it's saying? They have no idea how to even see the world until they see it in you. And they see it in me. It's something that's strange but attractive. That my life would point to something that this world can't actually bring about. 
If you have a Bible, you can turn back quickly to Romans chapter 12, which is an amazing passage, kind of alongside of this one. Romans 12, 20 and 21. The normal response for people is to avenge their mistreatment, fight back. But it says in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals. In other words, they're saying you will call them to repentance. They will see the way that they're actually living and the unjust slander that they're committing. And by your good works, they would actually be called to repentance. You will heap burning coals on his head. And I love this verse, which summarizes in in a lot of ways our first Peter passage. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The idea is that by our conduct as Restoration Church in West Galt in the year 2021, that when the world looks at us, they see maybe that their accusations are unjust. But here's the point. That they would see that the kingdom that they're actually living for, it's not that attractive anymore. The kingdom that those people are living for, I want that. That's the way it's supposed to be. And it's not about optics. The transformation in our lives, the way that we live, it doesn't, doesn't affor- we don't do it for like a, wow, Restoration Church, look, look how loving that church is. It affirms the truth of what we believe in. Our transformation affirms the truth. The passage ends off, it says, that they may see your good deeds, so keep, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, finally it says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. And then it finally says, and glorify God on the day of visitation. That day of visitation likely refers to the day of God's judgment. That there would be those, when, when Jesus returns, that there would be those who reject, but there would be those who embrace Jesus' return, who glorify God on the day of his return. So we, we, we don't do this for some sort of applause because we're, we're finally the church that gets it right and every other church got it wrong. We don't do this for some kind of applause. But that there would be, that there would be those who see us, that would be, they would be so compelled by the way that we are living, the transformation that Jesus has done in our own hearts, that they would want what we already have. That they would actually say, man, the things that they are actually talking about, maybe it's true. Maybe the things they say they believe in, which to me at this point sounds like insane, maybe it's actually true. As one commentator, Perkins, once said, Christians who show that their religion had enabled them to achieve the status of self-control over passions, that they could use that conduct to make a claim for its truth. Maybe it's actually true what they say they believe in. It's not about optics, guys. It's not about optics. It's actually something that actually, it comes from our soul, as it says in the passage. Not just how, how is this going to look to everyone else, but who am I as a Christian? Like that's the question we ask. Is not how is this going to look, but who am I as a Christian in the way that I'm called to live? 
This is really important because people have heard all the arguments, but they've seen a different story in front of them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like a church that they can, they can handle, here's all the arguments for believing in Jesus, but if someone doesn't actually see it, how do they believe it's true? And I think you have a whole bunch of people that have abandoned the faith because they've heard all of the arguments for faith, but they haven't actually seen it true in front of them. It hasn't been strangely attractive in front of them. This is not so they can see the best Aaron, but that they would see the beauty of Jesus in the way that I'm living my life. I gotta close with this. Jesus gives an amazing manifestation of this in his last days as he's going to the cross, as he lived out submission, as he lived out sacrifice, as he lived out humility. And he came not to be served, but to serve the people that he came in contact with. And trusted in his father. Submitted himself to a cross, nails driven through his hands and his feet. There's a man beside him who saw all of that happen saw a very different picture from the picture of the entire life that he lived in one man. This is is different than I've ever seen before. There's a man who only knew in his past probably heartbreak, mistreatment, turned to a life of stealing to take things that weren't his. We call him the thief on the cross beside Jesus. And he sees Jesus' conduct a man who is unfairly treated, unjustly sentenced. And the thief says to his his partner in crime, we're we're punished justly. We're, We're supposed to be here. For we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Look, I've seen him. He's done nothing wrong. By his conduct, this man came to a knowledge of the truth. This man has done nothing wrong, and then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered back, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And that man, along with so many others, when Jesus returns, will glorify God on the day of visitation because he saw Jesus' good works. And we're called to do the same. God, thank you so much for your word and how we live in this world. That we are called to live a strangely attractive faith. Yes, that is so, so different. That many people will look at us and be like, what, what is it with these people? What they believe is crazy. The way that they're living is strange. And we may stick out like a sore thumb. But Lord, we know that there will be some who see and will be called to repentance and say, I I want that. The way that I am living is so unattractive. The kingdom that I'm living for is so unattractive now. I I, I am compelled to be a part of the kingdom of God. Yeah, Lord, do this in our church. Do this in my life. 
even this week, Lord, may, may you call me to be controlled by the kingdom of God, that there will be some compelled to see. Yeah, we pray for all these things in your great name. Amen.